So you're looking, all looking very relaxed. <laughs> so I invite you, if you would like, just stay in the position you're in um, for this meditation. Unless you want to, if you, if you want to sit up, please obviously feel free to do that. But you're more than welcome to stay for this. This will be, uh, w- typically on retreat, we have a period in the afternoon where we um, cultivate heart practices. Um, this retreat is really all about heart practices anyway, but um, this is a time where we can kind of focus on a particular aspect of the heart practices. And the area I'm going to focus this, um, this period on is self-compassion, kindness to ourselves. Um, I'll say a little bit about that, but as I say, feel free to be in the position you're in or sitting, whatever, whatever's comfortable for you. I mean, the, we always encourage people in this period of the heart practices to really get comfortable. The more at ease we are, the more comfortable we are, the more we're able to let ourselves be open and be less defended, kind of less kind of in the fight or flight mode. So, um, as I mentioned um, last night, the loving kindness is one of the four, um, what are in the Pali language, um, called the Brahma Viharas. Brahma meaning divine or realm of the gods, and Vihara meaning a house or home. So, abode of the of of the divine or the gods. Sometimes these are called. Um, our best home. Um, you know, the Buddha once said that um, one should always be in one of these states of heart and mind, in either loving kindness, metta, compassion, karuna, appreciative joy or sympathetic joy, joy in the happiness of another, which is called uh, mudita, mudita, uh, or um, Equanimity, it's called upeka, upeka. And the emphasis this afternoon will be on the second quality of compassion, but specifically compassion towards ourselves. Compassion has been called the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. That when we, we have this natural capacity and natural inclination that when we see suffering, that we respond, you know, our heart opens. If somebody's, you know, in pain or lying in the road, you know, the first thing we want to do is to help. How can I help? What can I do to help? What can I do? Um, it's not to say we can't shut down those qualities, that, that character, those attitudes of heart and mind. We can. We can make ourselves through, you know, through our thoughts and beliefs. We can say, oh, no, no, not those people. Those people don't deserve that, that. And we see that in our world today, you know, where I'm sure many of the people who are doing harm to others are very kind towards their loved ones, their family members. You know, in some way they're kind of, they can find kindness for people close to them, maybe people who look like them or people who are part of their family or community or tribe or religion. But very easily we can get into separation from the other, those people. Those people don't deserve to be to be helped. They're just this or they're that. They're, you know, they don't work hard enough or they're, you know, just trying to, 
you know, get something for nothing. We're all familiar with all those stories that the mind can tell. And what that does is it allows ourselves, it allows one to separate ourselves from, from others and actually close our hearts down. And so what this practice of compassion um, is, is really, um, a, we could say, connecting with our natural empathy, our natural concern for others, and compassion has the kind of the added element to it. Not just we're concerned or we care about others, but we also want to do something. We're kind of moved to, to act to alleviate the suffering. So this is the nature of, of compassion. And um, self-compassion is, um, is obviously when we are suffering ourselves. So you could think of self-compassion as very much a continuation of the practices that we've been doing, the practice of loving-kindness towards ourselves. But what we're really focusing on with the self-compassion is the suffering part of it. With loving-kindness, not, we're not really focusing particularly on, on suffering. It's just a, a more generalized friendliness to ourselves, to others. This is a friendliness, but when that friendliness meets suffering, the character it takes is compassion. So caring, wanting to respond to and alleviate the suffering. The Zen hermit monk Ryokan said, Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to embrace the suffering of the world. Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to embrace the suffering of the world. That expression of compassion, the wish to respond to everyone's suffering. So we'll be, this afternoon, bringing this quality of care and concern and the wish to alleviate suffering to ourselves. It's very hard to overestimate the importance of self-compassion in helping us respond to fear, worry, anger, a range of challenging emotions and, and mind states, and in helping open our hearts. It's quite a few people when we've, I've done this meditation and others have done it, where we check in and say, um, ask people, do you find it harder to be compassionate to yourself than to be compassionate to others? Quite frequently, the majority of people, I don't know, I'm not going to take you out of your um, very calm states to ask you the question necessarily now, but just think about that. Do are you, do you find it easier to, to, to reach out, to um, be compassionate, to kind, kind to others when they're suffering um, than, it, than it is to, to be kind to yourselves? One of the things I, met, I talked briefly last night about the work um, I've been doing with others and with um, humanitarian aid workers in the Middle East. And one of the things that a number of people share at the end of the four-day workshops we do with them is, um, say, I've been taught all my life to be kind to others, but I've never been taught to be kind to myself. These are mainly women, mainly Muslim women, um, who are aid workers themselves and, you know, have a, have a great deal of training in, in, in looking after others, their family and their friends and community. And, you know, if they're in, in, in the, 
aid work to the beneficiaries of that work, but never really been taught to, that they need to include themselves in this circle of, of compassion and care. I share this reflection and short poem from, uh, from Tamara Engel, who was a member of the meditation community, insight community in New York, who was coming close to her death. And this is what she shared. She said, My days are short, and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and ease it brought, but the hard parts for every bored and restless sitting and every fearful fantasy and every pain and ache I sat through and every itch I didn't scratch was training for kindness, a training for the muscle, for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now as I face my death. So with a loving-kindness practice, we consciously cultivate kindness and compassion towards ourselves. That's a song from um, Leonard Cohen where he says, uh, There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. A crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. A, uh, one of the leading researchers in, um, in the area of self-compassion, Kristen Neff, N-E-F-F, um, defines self-compassion as entailing three key components. I just mentioned these and kind of put it in a, in a little bit of a framework and talk a little bit about some of the research and then we'll get into the, the practice itself. The first of these components is self-kindness. This is being gentle and understanding towards ourselves rather than critical and judgmental. So the first, self-kindness, just wishing ourselves well. You can imagine just saying to yourself, maybe putting your hand on your heart, may I be happy, that quality of kindness. So easy for us to be harsh and judgmental and critical towards ourselves. You know, when that, sometimes we can never be good enough. Oh, there you go again, you screwed up, or you're a loser, whatever these, sometimes these messages, we couldn't imagine saying anything as harsh or unkind to somebody else, but often we're, we're willing to, to be unkind and judgmental towards ourselves. So this is really the opposite, this is self-kindness. And the second component is seeing our, recognizing our common humanity, you know, and it's very, very powerful because when we're suffering, one of the qualities, one of the things we tend to experience when we suffer, when we're really caught up in, in anger or fear or craving, is we tend to feel we're alone. You know, we don't, we don't tend to feel, oh yeah, I'm feeling this, and oh, so many other people are feeling it. We get into this very narrow kind of tunnel vision. It's a, it's a fight or flight mode of the nervous system, we, and we, we only see the thing that seems to be threatening us or the thing that we want. We get into that really tight place. 
So we disconnect from our connection with others. You know, we, we get caught up in this sense of a, a really a separate self that is suffering. And so a way towards self-compassion is really to recognize that just as we're suffering, so many, many other people have experienced what we're feeling. You know, it may not be exactly the same. We obviously have our unique expression of it, each one of us. But it's all part of this wide, wider suffering. Other people have experienced something very similar. So co- recognizing our common humanity is feeling connected with others rather than feeling isolated or alienated. And the third quality of, of or component of self-compassion is mindfulness. That is holding our experience in a balanced awareness rather than identifying with it or avoiding it. So if we're experiencing something and we, we're judging it or we're pushing it away or we're holding on to it, that really we're not being mindful in that moment. We're being, we're clinging or we're resisting or we're judging. And mindfulness is just saying, oh, okay, this is, I feel the tightness or I feel the clinging and we open to it, let it come, let it go. So these three qualities, um, Professor Neff has developed a a self-compassion scale that measures individuals' ability to treat themselves with kindness rather than um, critical self-judgment. Um, so kind of weighing up, uh, do you lean towards being kind to yourself or being judgmental? Do you lean towards feeling, you know, experiencing your common humanity with others or do you lean towards kind of getting caught up in a sense of a separate self? Do you lean towards being aware, mindfully aware, or do you lean towards getting swept up or caught up in certain experiences? And what... Kristen Neff found was that people with higher levels of self-compassion were also had lower levels of mental health symptoms and vice versa. So the lower you were on the on the scale of self-compassion, the harsher you were to yourself, the more you saw your experiences separate from everybody else's, and the more caught up you were, the more um the, the more symptoms of, of disorders and conditions you've had, you'd have. And a review of studies involving over 4,000 participants found empirical evidence for the importance of self-compassion for developing well-being, reducing depression and, anxi- and anxiety, and increasing resilience to stress. So all of this is just to say that these practices that we're doing in the last... 10, 20 years particularly, have been found to be extremely closely connected with states of well-being and happiness and lower states of stress and anxiety and depression. And in many, many studies, there's, um, you know, I'm not going to go into the details of, of the benefits of loving kindness that have been found in the research, but if you just remember... Um, just remember two words, mindfulness and 18, and Google that when you get home. You can find a study by um, a researcher, well-known researcher called Emma Sapala, who talks about 18 um, benefits of practicing loving kindness that have been found in the research. And they include things like lower, lowering levels of depression, 
um, PTSD symptoms, um, lessening of chronic back pain, um, migraines, just a whole range of different um, different things. Also, even um, limiting um, or decreasing the amount of implicit bias one has towards towards others. So on that level, the more self-compassion, the more loving-kindness, the more you practice that, the more it helps work with the implicit bias that all of us have, you know, but that we can work with through these and other, 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 um, other practices. So self-compassion is associated with states such as happiness, optimism, wisdom, curiosity, personal exploration. It also decreases um, cortisol levels, which is associated with um, the chemical associated with stress, um, and promotes health health related behaviors like sticking to a diet, reducing smoking, and seeking needed medical treatment. So all of this is to say that these practices not only are helpful on a kind of a subjective level of like, oh, I feel better when I do this. But they can be helpful for working with, you know, uh, um, emotional, mental, and physical um, conditions as well. And the good news is that self-compassion, like mindfulness, can be developed and deepened through training and practice. Kristen Neff, with a colleague, Christopher Germer, developed an eight-week mindful, mindful self-compassion program. So it brings together self-compassion practices with mindfulness. And it found, they found that the program raised participants' self-compassion levels by 43%. So by practicing over eight weeks, you increase your capacity to be kind to yourself. You know, we tend to think of some of these states as like, oh, this is just the way I am. You know, I'm harsh and angry towards myself, or I'm judgmental. But these, these are things that, these are habits really that we've developed through practice over time. And we can retrain ourselves through practice over time, through the kind of training, the kind of practices that we've been doing, that we are doing this weekend. So none, none of this, none of the things that we take to be truths about ourselves or Let's maybe not so much say none. Let's say few of the truths, things we take to be true about ourselves, are in, in fact true in the sense we would mean that term. That they're much more beliefs that we've taken on, ways of being in the world that we've taken on through repetition over time. They're habits that we've developed. It's an area close to my heart. I've got to get another book in in two weeks on mindfulness and habit change. And one of the things, one of the kind of, I don't know what the word for it is, epigram or some kind of thing that a useful saying about habits is, if you, if you sow a thought, you reap an action. If you sow an action, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a character. And if you sow a character, you reap a destiny. So you can go all the way from thought to destiny just through what we keep doing. We keep repeating these things. And then it's not a necessary direction for us to go in, but in some way we're choosing to go that way. We're choosing to, you know, we have a judgmental thought and then in our mind we say, yes, that's really true. I am a loser or I am a jerk or I am mean or whatever. And we kind of reinforce that. And then we do things that, 
you know, that, that reinforce that as well. Maybe we don't take care of ourselves because, well, who am I to deserve to take care of myself? I'm such a loser, you know. And then the belief gets stronger, and that becomes part of our, you know, um, Wilhelm Reich, I think, talked about it, is our character armor, the way we defend ourselves against the world. And then that character becomes our destiny. It becomes, you know, because this, this, these are the seeds that we've sown, this is what we've created as our, life, as our life. But it's not truly, it didn't have to be that way. We're actually making choices all the way along the line. So with what we're doing this weekend, we're consciously making choices to, to be here, to be present, to come back when the mind wanders, to cultivate kindness, to cultivate compassion towards ourselves. So all of this as a prelude to the practice of self-compassion in the rest of this time we'll be doing the practice. And it's very, very similar to what we've been doing um, up to now with the loving kindness, with just some slight adjustments with the phrases. And again, with the phrases, you can use whatever is most helpful to you. We can use the words, we can visualize, if, we're, if that's helpful, kind of imagine ourselves being happy, even if we don't necessarily feel happy in this moment. We can touch into the feelings in the body. I'm going to share a story from, uh, we've shared a few of stories from Thich Nhat Hanh this weekend, a Vietnamese Zen monk and teacher, poet, author, um, was nominated by Dr. Martin Luther King for the Nobel Peace Prize back in 1967 um, for his work in trying to bring peace to Vietnam. And uh, he's actually dying now, I mean, fairly close to his death. He's gone back to, to Vietnam, but he's a wonderful, wonderful teacher, kind of founder, really, of the engaged Buddhism movement, bringing Buddhism, the teachings, into the very actively into the world of social engagement. And uh, this is a story, I've shared this at other times, his story, and it speaks very much to me because it's about his, his mother dying, and my mother died this last year, in, uh, in last August, and uh, very, had a very profound experience of her passing and moving on to the next, you know, the next stage of things. But share this, um, share this um, reflection of his on his mother dying. He says, the day my mother died, I wrote in my journal, a serious misfortune of my life has arrived. I suffered for more than one year after the passing away of my mother. But one night in the highlands of Vietnam, I was sleeping in the heart of my hermitage. I dreamed of my mother. I saw myself sitting with her and we were having a wonderful talk. She looked young and beautiful, her hair flowing down. It was so pleasant to sit there and talk to her as if she had never died. When I woke up, it was about two in the morning and I felt very strongly that I had never lost my mother. The impression that my mother was still with me was very clear. I understood then that the idea of having lost my mother was just an idea. It was obvious in that moment that my mother is always alive in me. I opened the door and went outside. The entire hillside was bathed in moonlight. It was a hill covered with tea plants, and my hut was set behind the temple halfway up. 
Walking slowly in the moonlight through the rows of tea plants, I noticed my mother was still with me. She was the moonlight caressing me as she had done so often. Very tender, very sweet, wonderful. Each time my feet touched the earth, I knew my mother was there with me. I knew this body was not mine alone, but a living continuation of my mother and my father and my grandparents and great-grandparents, of all my ancestors. These feet that I saw as my feet were actually our feet. Together, my mother and I were leaving footprints in the damp soil. So for, for this meditation, just sit or lie in a relaxed and comfortable posture. And take some moments to relax and let go of any tension in the body and the mind. Maybe taking some deeper, longer breaths. Relaxing any area of tension in the body. Perhaps inviting a smile to the corners of your eyes, the corners of your mouth. I want to just say that um, to invite you to take that story and any story or anything that's shared here in the way that's most helpful to you. I've, when I've shared it, sometimes people have said or shared my own story about my mother and her passing. You know, sometimes people have said to me afterwards, I'm really kind of jealous that you had such a good relationship with your mother because I had a really difficult and painful one. And just to acknowledge that everyone doesn't have an easy relationship with their parents or vice versa with their children. So, And so just to acknowledge that and not to expect that or think that somehow we're falling short if there's, you know, if we're not experiencing the same thing or if our relationships are more difficult because inevitably some of our relationships in our life will be. Hopefully we can, we can work with them through the kind of practices that we can do. But just to be, be careful, be, be kind to yourself when, you know, if anything like that comes up in your practice. And just bring a kind attention to any, any suffering you might be experiencing right now. You know, it may be just very slight. There might be a feeling of, of sadness or loneliness. Maybe a feeling of too much to do or stress or worry, anxiety. Whatever comes up and maybe there isn't anything present and you could do this practice for when when there is something present when there is some difficulty some pain some suffering present and meet your feelings with kindness and care allow yourself to let go of any story or narrative about why you are you might be feeling sad or lonely let go of the stories in the mind and just come to open to the feelings you're experiencing. Just open to the bodily feelings that are present with kindness and with acceptance. If it's helpful, you can put a hand on your heart, on your belly, 
Just I think as an expression of caring, kindness, compassion towards yourself. And just set the intention to meet any difficult or painful feelings with care and compassion and understanding. And just breathing in a relaxed, easy way. Know that you're not not alone, that others too are experiencing difficulties, pain and loss. That this is a shared human experience. If you can, feel your connection with others who've perhaps experienced something similar to you or some other related kind of pain or difficulty or sadness, resentment, whatever it might be. And repeat these phrases to yourself with kindness. And again, like with the loving kindness phrases, change them, let go of them, use them in whatever way is most most useful to you most helpful. Just breathing in, may I be safe. May I be safe. Sending that wish to, uh, to yourself that you be safe. May I be safe. Breathing in, may I be happy. May I be happy. Like you could envision yourself being happy, being with friends or loved ones, enjoying yourself, being happy, or a time you were. May I be happy. May I be kind to myself. Breathing in that wish, may I be kind to myself. May I accept myself as I am. May I accept myself as I am. Just repeat the phrases to yourself, opening to whatever bodily feelings might be coming up. And meet whatever you experience with kindness and with acceptance. May I be safe. May I be happy. May I be kind to myself. May I accept myself as I am. If the mind wanders, gently bring your attention back to the phrases or to the bodily feelings that are present. And if the practice brings up intense feelings or emotions, you can come back to just a simple awareness of your breathing, if that's helpful. 
And then when you feel ready, return to the phrases of self-compassion. So in the remaining time of the meditation, just sit quietly, opening to whatever feelings or sensations are present, using the phrases if they're helpful for you. Allow yourself to take in any feelings of kindness towards yourself that arise. And if no feelings come up or if you experience negative or difficult emotions, meet these two with kindness and acceptance. Appreciating the efforts and intentions you brought to this practice and cultivating kindness towards yourself. May I be safe. May I be happy. May I be kind to myself. May I accept myself as I am. This is um, from Raina Maria Rilke. I live my life in widening circles. 
I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years, and still I don't know. Am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? <laughs>